0: Hello there to all of those in podcast land. This is Lee Hajj the principal of Bryden's Lawyers. Now, this is the first for 2020, so happy new year to all of those who are listening. And let us hope that it is a year filled with health, happiness, and prosperity. So we're gonna kick off this year's Law Pod episodes with one that I think is of interest to many people, and that's workers' compensation claims. And to allow us to discuss what is an interesting topic and one that we have all spent a lot of time operating within is the head of my workers' compensation division and a Associate to Bryden's Lawyers, John Matthews. Welcome, John.
1: Thank you, Lee, thanks for inviting me.
0: John, you've been with us for some time now. I've
1: been at Bryden's for five years now.
0: Ah, And enjoying it? Very much so. I'm glad to hear that. And you oversee my workers' compensation division. I do. And we have always traditionally acted on behalf of injured workers. Correct. Which I'm very proud to say. All right, well, let's go through the workers' compensation scheme together. And we'll start at the beginning. Someone is injured at work. And of course, all injuries are covered by the workers' compensation scheme, whether they be physical or psychological. And unless the injury is deliberately self-inflicted, you are covered by your employer's workers' compensation insurance.
1: That's exactly right. It's a relatively simple concept in that you need to be simply injured at work. Doesn't matter whether it's, it's your fault, or the employer's fault it could be nobody's fault the simple test is did i injure myself at work and as you say with the exception you can't purposely injure yourself or, or injure yourself through misconduct so for example if you're a truck driver and you're intoxicated and and that causes you to have a a truck accident, you wouldn't be covered there because that's misconduct.
0: Well, I think that's fair enough. I think most people would accept that. Plus that person would also have available to them benefits under Centrelink, for example, and Medicare. So they still will get looked after. They just can't benefit under their employer's workers' compensation insurance. So it doesn't matter how negligent you may be yourself or your employer, as long as you are injured at work and it's connected to your employment, then you're covered. Now, if the employer, however, is negligent and the worker suffers a serious injury, that gives rise to other potential potential claims, which we'll deal with later. That's what we call work injury damages claims. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. The worker's injured. What do they do? What's the first thing they do?
1: First thing, Lee, is simply report your injury to your employer straight away. Don't delay. Go and tell your employer, I've hurt myself make a written report of injury. Your next step is to go to your local doctor, your GP and get a work cover medical certificate. All GPs have them so obtain one of them and give it to your employer. The other thing which you should do in my opinion is complete a workers compensation claim form and provide that to your employer. You can also do this claim form now online and you can send it direct to the insurance company. So if you're internet savvy, you can do it all online.
0: Are there time limits in relation to the reporting of the injury to the employer and lodgement of the claim form? You've got six months to lodge a claim. This assumes, of course, that the injured worker is able to actually report the incident to the employer or lodge the claim form. But if the worker has a very serious injury and is transported to hospital, for example, for emergency treatment and is very seriously disabled, then obviously that is taken into account if there's any delay.
1: In practice, what you find is for any serious injury where a worker is taken
0: that day to hospital, the claim will be lodged by the employer. There are other types of injuries, of course, that come on over time. And there are other injuries which may have presented themselves even before the worker commenced employment, Mm -hmm. pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are very worried that if they do have a pre-existing condition, which they exacerbate, aggravate with a new employer they're not covered. Mm. But that's not the case, is it?
1: No, it's not the case. A pre-existing injury is very common in workers' compensation. We come across them all the time. If you take a 60-year-old person, a lot of 60-year-old people will say, I have a bit of an issue with my back. I get an ache and pain uh, over the years. If that person then injures their back at work on a particular day, as long as the workplace injury makes that back condition worse, that is still covered by workers' compensation.
0: Well, I mean, it's the old adage, isn't it, that the employer takes the worker as they find them? That's just exactly a, just right. Just yep. as you do in, the, in right. a common law situation. Yep. So if someone does have a predisposition to injury or illness or has a pre-existing condition, yep. that's how they start that employment. There's a further injury which exacerbates that. Mm. The employer or the insurer can't turn around and say, well, hang on a minute, you've had a previous problem, therefore you're not covered. No. You are covered. Now, one of the documents that a worker will come across, of course, is a certificate of capacity. What does that tell us?
1: That certificate sets out whether an injured person is totally unfit for work, or partially fit for work, or fully fit for work. The certificate also sets out any relevant restrictions. For example, there might be lifting restrictions on a person with a back injury. The GP might say, look, you're fit for full work, but..." I don't want you you lifting any object above seven kilograms.
0: So the employee returns to work with the certificate of capacity, sets out the limits on their ability to return to work, for example, maybe no ability to return to work or maybe a restricted ability. And the employer then has an obligation, don't they, to actually provide the employee with suitable work. That's right, yep. And if the employer refuses or is unable to provide the employee with suitable work there's a legal issue then arises doesn't it so far as the employee is concerned
1: really what happens there an employer is is required to provide suitable duties as far as possible okay if you come across an employer who says look we're a small business we just don't have light duties we're we're all doing physical work here. They simply say we don't have the ability to provide those suitable duties. That's not a a negative for the worker. The worker just continues to receive weekly payments of workers' compensation there.
0: That's right, because if the employer refuses or is unable to provide suitable employment, the injured worker is treated as if they are completely unfit for work until the employer can provide suitable duties or until the worker is completely fit to return to pre-accident duties. Yeah,
1: that's right. Well, at
0: least that way the worker's covered. That's right. And there's no penalty as such for the employer. No. No, I mean, they've got to do what's reasonably yep. available to yep. them. Yep. But if they just haven't got the capacity to provide suitable employment, then yep. well, they can't just make up a job, can they? No, they can't. So
1: well, in those circumstances, and that and that happens every yep. now and then, I advise clients not to, not to take that personally. All the injured person has to do is present that certificate, ask for suitable duties, and then it's up to the employer.
0: All right, well, we'll touch briefly now on the benefits available to injured workers, because that'll be the subject of a separate podcast in due course. But simply put, an injured worker is entitled to weekly benefits, medical expenses, and perhaps a lump sum. Now, in relation to weekly benefits, we call them weekly benefits as opposed to wages, because it may not always be all the wage. No. It's a weekly benefit that's defined. Yep. And they're paid that whilst they're off work and whilst they continue to provide a certificate.
1: That's correct. Yep. An injured person receives 95% of what they used to earn for the first 13 weeks they're off work. After that, the the maximum rate of weekly compensation becomes 80%. Overtime is is now included in the calculation of that worker's earnings, the government having amended the legislation in late 2018 to, to again incorporate a worker's actual earnings, including overtime. Unfortunately, superannuation is not is not paid while you're receiving weekly payments of workers' compensation leave.
0: It's tragic in my view, and I've made this complaint about motor accident claims as well. I have no understanding as to why an injured worker only receives 95% of their pre-accident wage for 13 weeks and then 80%. Why should the scheme retain that 5% and that 20% for no good reason in my view? And that might be the difference between a worker being able to meet their obligations, their financial obligations such as rent or school fees or mortgages or the like, there is no good reason for that in my view, but we'll discuss that at a, at a later time. Now, in relation to medical expenses, the worker is entitled to receive all reasonable and necessary medical treatment, and the insurer pays for the same. That's right, yeah. Are there many disputes in relation to medical treatment?
1: There are, and we typically see disputes arising in relation to surgery. So an injured person's treating specialist says, I I recommend you, you need an operation on your shoulder or your back. The injured person says, okay, doctor, I I agree with you. I want to move forward with that procedure. I think that will help me. Commonplace that insurers will say, no, we we don't believe you need that operation. We pursue those disputes at Brighton's regularly and we have a lot of success with them. So,
0: Yeah, look, I I can't understand. How does an insurer anyone deny what the treating doctor recommends for an injured worker. I mean, so the injured worker would have to be obviously guided by their treating doctor. And you would think the commission and insurers should be paying huge regard to what a treating, I mean, no one proffers advice concerning surgery unless they believe that the injured worker requires it. no one tells an injured worker you need an operation unless they unless they do need it it's just it just goes with that argument in my view all right well then that leads us to then lump sum compensation that still remains available albeit very limited for injured workers and the scheme now provides for a whole person impairment assessment and the injured worker's got to reach a threshold don't they before they can receive any compensation what's that threshold for
1: a physical injury so an injury to your body being your shoulder your neck your back your ankle you have to reach 11% whole person impairment for a psychological injury a pure psychological injury for example the threshold for a psychological injury is 15
0: All all right now being the devil's advocate as i am and the critic of this scheme and all schemes enacted by this government and previous governments firstly you have to get over the 10 percent whole person impairment threshold that is 11 percent before you see one cent for the injury that you've sustained a large number of injured people who are left with permanent incapacity are cut out and they, 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 they yeah. do not receive anything. They do. Secondly, why are those who suffer a psychological injury discriminated against with a 15% threshold as opposed to a 10%? And thirdly, why is a secondary psychological injury disregarded to such an extent? I just don't understand the, the reasoning behind these decisions. Mm. And I can only suggest it's to try and reduce the number of claims and the amount of compensation that has to be paid out. I assume that's right, Lee. I think if someone's worth X, whatever it is, they're entitled to receive it. I mean, that's why employers pay insurance such as I do for all of my staff and if any of my staff were injured, and I hope that never occurs, but if they were, then I'd be more than happy for them to extract every cent of compensation to which they are entitled.
1: That's exactly right, Lee. And it is important that an injured person seek legal advice from lawyers who are experienced in workers' compensation claims because it's important to extract every last percentage you can from an injury. What we don't want to see is a person with a significant injury that is placing them off work. You can tell when you see a person's injury and you speak to them, you can tell that this injury is going to affect you for the rest of your working life. What is disappointing however is if that client is ultimately assessed at 14%. What is a very useful thing to do is to explore where other percentages are available. We may have a back injury and that person may have had surgery. That back operation may attract 15%, but it may only attract 14 or 13%. If it's 13 or 14, that's disappointing. The worker has no ability to pursue a more valuable work injury damages claim. However, if you explore, for example, that client with a back injury taking a lot of pain medication over an extended period of time that commonly gives rise to a gastrointestinal disorder which may make the difference even if we only get one or two percent for that that disorder.
0: I mean, the bottom line is injured workers should engage experts such as Bryden's lawyers to pursue their rights to compensation. That's right. All right. Now, the other thing, of course, that concerns a lot of people, legal costs. Legal costs. Yeah. yeah. What's the position with legal costs in a workers' compensation matter?
1: Well, it's very simple, Lee. There are no legal costs. And that arises from the fact that in New South Wales for statutory workers' compensation claims, the legal fees are paid by the Workers' Compensation Independent Review Office, known as WIRO. As We simply write to WIRO on behalf of a client requesting a grant of legal funding or legal aid. If we are successful in obtaining that grant of funding, WIRO pay all legal costs for that workers statutory workers compensation issue. So there is simply no cost at all.
0: Uh, All right. Well, thank you for that, John. The the final thing that I'd like to touch upon is that the New South Wales and the Victorian schemes have obviously come under some scrutiny of late. And in fact, even as recently as 11 January, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald or an opinion piece written by Adele Ferguson, who's a journalist and columnist. And it follows on from a Victorian analysis that's been undertaken of the Victorian workers' compensation scheme that's come to a similar conclusion to that that was the subject of review in new south wales and i'd just like to extract a couple of comments from those articles Uh, firstly the overwhelming conclusion is that workers are not receiving prompt treatment that in itself is enough of a concern and it's also saying that the underlying picture could be far worse when you combine difficulties facing the financials of the scheme with recent claims experience and the conclusion drawn by the author of the article is that if things go wrong it will have a very significant material impact on employers workers and the broader new south wales community. As as a businessman myself and a lawyer who's practiced in this area for over 30 years, I just cannot understand how successive New South Wales governments get it so wrong all the time. You know, they've enacted the scheme agents now. They're still arguing about the same things that we've been arguing about for 30 years. In other words, the financial viability of the scheme. We know that with increases in occupational health and safety measures, number of claims and the like have diminished, the value of claims have diminished. How do they keep getting it so wrong? I think perhaps that's not a, a question I should direct to you, but to those in power. But at the end of the day, when they reform these schemes, it seems it's only the injured workers or injured motorists or injured people who suffer as a result of reform.
1: I mean, these reports do raise serious issues. I think it's certainly a positive is that these reports have been written. I think an interesting thing I took away from the Victorian Ombudsman's report, the Ombudsman highlighted the human cost the human cost of these decisions made by insurers and you don't often see or my experience is you don't often see that that highlighted but the the ombudsman raises the termination of of compensation benefits is done on occasions in victoria inappropriately there is Uh, shopping for IME, independent medical examiners, who will ultimately, or they will find one, who will decline a claim. The Ombudsman picks up the human cost of those decisions, so all those people who have their claims terminated, a lot of them have families, a lot of them have financial obligations. Those decisions made by insurers at the stroke of a pen have a big flow-on effect, and and we see that in, in our work. because we get sent the decisions at the same time the worker does. We have to give the worker some guidance as to how to try and manage things while we pursue their dispute. It's fully accepted that an insurer has the right to assess a claim and determine whether that claim should, should be accepted or remain accepted or, or be denied. But what I think is not appropriate is where those decisions are made with an element of malice, or unfairness. You can see in the Ombudsman's report, she states that, or the Victorian Ombudsman states that the balance has moved away from fairness. That's of significant concern. I would hope that certainly in Victoria, steps are taken
0: to remedy these failures. I could not agree with you more. Uh, John, thank you very much for attending today. I hope you enjoyed that.
1: Thank you. I did, like
0: It yeah. was great. And thank you all for listening to LawPod. If there's anything in particular that you would like to hear, any subject matter that you would like us to address, do not hesitate to email us directly at lawpod at brydens.com.au and follow us on social media platforms being Facebook, Twitter and instagram and linkedin so tune in again for another special guest and thank you for listening this week